1: It's a very special episode of the Book Riot podcast. We have a special topic. We have a special guest. We're going to be talking about a lot of special books. It is our the books that define the decade of the teens. Is that what we're calling? Is that what we're going to call them Ugh. the twenty teens? The twenty teens, I guess. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky and Amanda Nelson, and we have each independently picked our ten books of the decade that we think defined the decade in books and reading. The metaphor I just used before we started recording was if we had to make a time capsule and bury it—is that what you do with a time? You bury it, you shoot into space, I don't Mm -hmm. know—that we're going to tell the stories of what happened in books and reading in the last decade. These are the 10 we would pick. So they're not our favorite books. We don't think they're the best books. They may not even be the most capital-I important books, but they are, to us, the most representative books. Um, And I think in in talking about the books, some themes will emerge about what those books themselves represent. Because I found myself—the book itself generally represented something else. Mm -hmm. Like it was itself, but also represented something else. I'm so interested to hear what you guys picked. Um, I'm guessing there's going to be some overlap. I'd be super interested what the overlap is. I'll be fascinated if there isn't. And Amanda, Mm -hmm. because she spoke up and said she had sort of the first among dwarves— that was the, easy, the easiest for her to pick or she mm. thought the most important. Amanda, I'm going to have you lead off. What's your number one with a bullet time capsule book for the teens?
2: It's got to be Fifty Shades of Grey. That's yep. what I had to. Mm-hmm. Yes! Too. Yes! <laughs> Nailed it! All right. Thank you. And it, it was, was published in t- 2011. My- Yep. Yeah. -hmm. So it just barely squeaked in. What was it on, Rebecca?
3: It was on. I was saying it was on my list, probably on y'all's list too. Before Publishers Weekly announced it as the Mm best-selling book of the decade this
1: morning. Yeah. Oh, I didn't see that. It was the best-selling book of the decade. Wow. Fifteen million
2: copies. Wow.
1: So Amanda, talk about more about that. I mean, so it was the best-selling book of the decade. So almost by like fiat, it has to be on the list. But it's not just that, is it? Yeah. Is it just that it sold the most or what no, else is it No, because
2: I picked it before, like Rebecca yeah. said, before that news had come out. I was not surprised that it was the best-selling book of the decade. Um, but I picked it because, well, it saved Bookstores, yeah. like mm-hmm. not an exaggeration. I worked at an independent bookstore when that trilogy was released, and it was literally the only title that kept our doors open for mm. that for like several years. Um, it, it could, it, I mean, it changed. I think everything that is interesting about books right now or that has changed over the decade changed because of Fifty Shades of Grey. Like, wow,
1: say more about that.
2: Well, romance being mm. I, romance has always been the best-selling genre in publishing but 50 shades of gray made it not something people read in the dark but something people just read and talked about it changed uh formats i I think e-readers the popularity of e-readers and reading digitally in general um was really bolstered by 50 shades of gray and now e-reading isn't even a thing we talk about it's just a thing people do um I think it made readers out of people who were not readers who 10 years later are still reading, probably still reading erotica or still reading romance, which is great. Um, Yeah, I think that everything (laughs) that books are now in 2019 is probably because of even the way we talk about books like hot on the Internet, especially hot takes controversy like, yeah, this is too feminist. It's not feminist enough. Like all of that back and forth that we have about Mm. pretty much everything now started With Twilight and then Fifty Shades of Grey, but I can't talk about Twilight because that was published before this decade.
1: (laughs) Even the seeds of talking about... Even a pre-Me Too discussion about consent was interesting, I remember, in those early days of Fifty Shades.
3: And it led to a mainstream discussion-slash- Argument discourse about BDSM, uh-huh. uh, like tied in with consent as well. We had this like big conversation about things that people that have previously been taboo about expressions of desire and practices that um, people have felt like they had to hide um, or they would be judged for. And then all of a sudden, like everyone everyone and everyone's mom was sitting around reading it at the pool or in the break room at work. And this was just on the table um, that a book that um, for any problems you might have with it. And I know I had plenty of problems with 50 Mm -hmm. shades of gray, like Mm -hmm. a book that um, mainstreamed a conversation about sexuality and women's desire in the way that it did is important, whether you like the contents of the book or not. And I think Amanda's exactly right that it brought romance reading into mainstream conversation with, like, with some respect and consideration of being a romance reader in an important way, um, and also that there's a best-selling book of every decade, but in no other decade that I'm aware of did the best-selling book of the decade result in every employee of that publishing house getting a five thousand mm-hmm. dollar bonus. Like that's that was one of just... the very
1: first stories we talked about on the Book Riot podcast, and I remember it distinctly still, being like, "Wow, just because of this book, everyone's getting a check, getting them checks." Yeah.
2: And I think that it's also one of the reasons why we have so many conversations now about like literature, capital L, and how that's not really a thing anymore. And Mm. the idea that a book being popular and having inherent value just because it makes somebody read, I think Fifty Shades of Grey has a lot to do with that. I mean, before we would talk about like, yeah, they're reading, but like they just read YA or they just read romance. I'm like, that's not real. You know, that was like a real thing that people said Mm. out loud with their mouths. (laughs) <laughs> um, before this book happened. And it really changed, I think, a lot of minds about um, what whether or not a certain genre was valuable over another genre. Because literary fiction is not, I mean, it is a genre, but and does it have any inherent value over and above reading something like Fifty Shades of Grey? If you ask somebody, they'll probably have an opinion about it. But the fact that that question is even being asked, I think, is because this book became such a big deal.
1: Well, and that question's sort of over, because mm-hmm. Book Riot started in mm-hmm. 2011, and I think we came in at the end of what was in the book blogosphere discussion about literature versus not literature. And I kind of remember by the time book ride started that we weren't even interested in that question anymore. And I think 50, I think you're right that 50 shades, if it wasn't the reason it was a significant contributing factor. The other two notes I had are almost about things that I thought were going to be trends coming out of 50 shades that actually kind of haven't turned into trends. One is the mainstreaming of fan fiction. Mm. Um, Fan fiction is still a thing, but it's not mainstream. Like it's it's a community and it hasn't had another I thought there would be other breakout hits that would become big publishing traditional publishing phenomena. Unless I'm missing one, there hasn't been one like this. And then also this also has a this is a story about initial self-publishing, right? Mm-hmm. That got turned into something else, which in romance and some genre places has become a really important force. But it hasn't broken through like this again, which when Fifty Shades happened, you could have told me that we're going to have 25 household writer names that started out self-pubbed. And it hasn't happened, which I think is fascinating, too, um, to to say. Anything else on Fifty Shades? All right, Rebecca, you're up next. Where you want to go? It doesn't have to be related, but take us anywhere you want.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Then you have Claire Biggs, who is the epitome of sunshine. She's always loved Gibbsy, her brother's friend and her favorite neighbor. She also has always seen a side to him that no one else seems to notice, and she becomes determined to tame her wild at heart childhood best friend. So the Boys of Tommen series is an internationally best-selling YA romance series that has taken TikTok by storm. It's perfect for readers looking for new adult slash crossover romance, dual point of views, friends to lovers, Marathon worthy TikTok books and angsty tear jerkers. Taming Seven is published today and it's the fifth book in the series, so make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Mm-hmm.
2: I think we have to talk about
1: Ghosts at a Watchman. Uh, Ghost at a Watchman. I didn't include it.
2: I didn't I either. about it.
1: Did you think about it, Amanda, before no, we tell it? I think it? Okay. my brain
2: probably blocked out the existence of that book a little bit.
1: Rebecca, <laughs> tell us about why you picked Ghost at a Watchman. Know,
2: it's not necessarily
3: the book itself that is significant, but the story around the book and all of the, the hullabaloo, that mm. there was the early draft of To Kill a Mockingbird that Harper Lee's estate decided to... Allow it to be published. Um, that it was presented as the sequel to *Go Set a Watchman* or to *To Kill a Mockingbird* when it wasn't, and readers were very confused. Like there was a lot of marketing that I think was intentionally vague uh, for the purposes of selling the book and just the story of like w- whichever story you subscribe to, whether you took it as this is the sequel to *To Kill a Mockingbird* or it's just the new Harper Lee book or we get to read the early version of this and look how complicated mm. this is. Like, that's a huge deal. Um, we very rarely get something like that from, an, from any author, but especially an author who's as important in the American canon and conversation about books and in such a complicated way now as the text of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird is that Go at a Watchman, like... I'm so disappointed. I thought both of you guys would be like, yes, obviously, think- that was one of the biggest things that happened this decade was that we got a secret Harper Lee thing. Um I also remember I was traveling when the news broke, and it was the two of you on the Book Riot podcast. And so I yes. remember hearing the story um, as the two of y'all were talking about it, being like, this is just going to be a big deal. And maybe part of the story is that it wasn't a big deal, that mm-hmm. – Ghost at a Watchman is not on the lists of the best books that came out this decade. I agree. I didn't, it's not a great book. It's an early draft. Um, Not a great look to publish most writers, early drafts. I don't even want like early drafts of my emails to see Uh the light of day. (laughs) Um, But what a huge story uh, that even if the headline was misleading, the headline of new Harper Lee book found and to be published. Um, Big one.
1: I thought about it, but I kept it off for the reason that, I think Amanda Best exemplifies that she didn't think of it, and Amanda was on CNN talking about <laughs> it, so she should have remembered it. But she didn't because it was like a footnote to the Harper Lee phenomenon that yeah. doesn't feel like it was of the decade. That's ultimately why I mm. left it off. Well, I, I fine. I, no, I think you could put it on for sure. I think <laughs> mm-hmm. it's not unreasonable. It's just I had a lot of picks, and when it came to winnowing down, I was like, "Go, set a Watchman, is the end of the Harper Lee story, and it's not really of this decade. It's ultimately what I... Oh, Even though it was published here, there was almost immaterial that was published this decade. I don't know if that makes
3: sense. I don't know. The way that it was capitalized on and spun felt very like 20, what was it, 2016.
2: Like late stage capitalism? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I agree um, that the story, if, if this were like the biggest book stor- stories or events of the decade, that would probably. Yeah. But I think in my head, the reason why it didn't occur to me is because I don't consider Ghost at a Watchman to be a legitimate book. Like his, oh, it's procedural a co- objection! Right, uh-huh. it's like a collection mm. of notes. It's a draft. It wasn't complete. She changed so much about it. Um, like she struck an entire Confederate apologist out of the book. <laughs> you know, before she made it into *To Kill a Mockingbird*, and I just it doesn't feel even you know hardcover twenty seven ninety nine doesn't feel like right. a real thing to me.
1: Yeah, they tried to dress it up and make it look like a unique standalone. Mm-hmm. Oh, but yeah. we know. We know. And we talked about that on the show oh, too, Because yes. like if we just just tell us what the th- treat me like an adult and tell me what the scan right. is and I'll, I'll yeah. feel so much better. Um, <laughs> yeah I about think there it. could
3: have been plenty interest in it uh, if it were packaged as exactly what it is.
0: Yeah.
1: Um I'll go next. I I I tried to keep one spot for if I had to guess what the book English majors might be talking about in 30 years. Like mm. what what will be the literary Voyager that continues into the future. I had a hard time picking. I ultimately landed on The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. That's on my list, too. Um, Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Interesting. And I just think it represents so much of what was interesting about, I'll call it capital L literature, you know, and and not to say that's different, but it's the kind of thing that people tend to study and then tends to endure rightly or wrongly. It's historical fiction with a twist. Um, I think, Rebecca, you and I talked about Whitehead. Getting the torch, receiving the torch, taking the torch of greatest American living greatest living American novelist. And I think without Underground Railroad, it's more of a debate for me, and with it it's not as much of a debate. I just think the blending of Whitehead being the Capital L literature fiction person for me, but he also writes in genre with twists, I think is very telling about the blending of genres and what literary fiction has become in this decade, that it wasn't in 2009.
3: Yeah, that was pretty much exactly what I was thinking, that it's both, this book is both really exemplary of the genrefication of literary fiction, and it's the breakout book that lined Colson Whitehead up to take the throne when Toni Morrison passed earlier this year. Mm. Um, That, I can't think of another living American writer who rivals the, we've had this conversation, like who rivals the creativity, the variety, and like the... Scope and depth of subject matter that Whitehead will take on, and then to do it all as beautifully and surprisingly as as he does. But Underground Railroad felt like a marked, like step to a new level
1: Mm -hmm. uh, in his catalog. So that's mine, Amanda. I guess you're up next.
2: Yeah. Okay. So I don't have any lead-in for this other than it just is what it is, and it's Gone Girl. I have Ah, that too. I forgot Gone Gone Girl. Yes, 2012. Um, I, you know, <laughs> I mean, it just spawned a whole freaking yes. movement, mm-hmm. like not just books with girl in the title of which we got a million after that. But also, I think it was responsible for responsible for a big resurgence in the psychological thriller as a genre. Um, Also, it kind of gave us women as sociopaths. Yes, which, that's which what was I the had to thing. Yeah, we didn't have. I mean, of course, we have examples of that before Gone Girl was published, but it became like a thing after Gone Girl Mm -hmm. came out to have female villains in violent, like psychological thrillers or murder mysteries. Um, And that just wasn't as common as it is now. Um, And I think that that is fascinating because Amy Dunn is one of my favorite characters Mm -hmm. in books. Mm -hmm. She is just the weirdest like coldest i love her brain the cool girl monologue in the book which is also mm. in the movie is one of the best pieces of writing ever. (laughs) It's just amazing and I love, I think that Gillian Flynn is a very literary, whatever that means, a very literary genre writer. Um, Yes. And it was such a great crossover. I considered it a crossover. The movie was great. Like, it's just...
3: In my brain, that book came out in 2009. I should have Googled.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So are you saying if you had known it was 2012, you would have it on the list? Well, yeah, because then from,
3: I think Amanda sort of hinted at this too, that then from Gone Girl, we got the girl on the train. We got this whole unreliable narrator. Yeah, Like, really resurgence of unreliable narrator in thrillers in this certain way of like there's going to be a big twist halfway through. Um, And then not just as a marketing phenomenon, but books have been trying to be the next Gone Girl um, since then. And some
1: were, like Girl on the Train. Mm -hmm. I mean, Girl on the Train, Woman in the Window – those are all children of Gone Girl, right? I mean, I don't know those exist without Gone Girl.
2: And in, it's in also diverse. one of the, I think the, it, it didn't start this trend, but it definitely amplified it. This like subversive feminism yeah. that isn't named in the book, but it's definitely in there and it's in there on purpose. Um but... And it also
3: gave rise to these arguments about, like, is this feminist, or is mm -hmm. it a misogynist text, or is it both? Like, there was
2: just so much discourse around it. More nuance!
1: (laughs) And it it itself was already a commentary on the tropes around violence against women, right? It Mm -hmm. it was almost a meta-thriller in that regard. It it was exploiting what you might expect about how thrillers are constructed for its own twist, which is kind of remarkable. I love stuff like that, so... Um, that was definitely on mine as well. Rebecca, you're up next.
3: Ooh, Crazy Rich Asians. Ooh. Okay. I thought
1: about this. Tell me why. Uh,
3: first, because the trilogy just sold like gangbusters, and I think it's continuing to. Huge, mm-hmm. just fun, also literary fiction, but super fun and bubblegummy and gossipy and so many layers and well-written Um Like, great series. People were reading it in airports everywhere I traveled for the last several years. But then it gave rise to, like, we very rarely see an Asian American writer get that kind of attention. And then it gave rise to an adaptation that was made for $30 million with an mm. uh, basically entirely Asian cast and did like almost $300 million at the box office and was a huge deal um, as a great, it's a great movie based on a great book, um, but also for representation. And this to me, like really, Stands as the best example that we've had in this decade about the progress that has been made in our conversations, both in publishing and in culture, in a a larger sense about the value and importance of representation, of inclusivity, of seeing people who aren't white on screen and telling a variety of stories, and that Crazy Rich Asians was the phenomenon that it was, and that the movie had the success that it had with you know, huge audiences from all kinds of backgrounds flocking to it supports that argument, supports all of those statements that this is a thing that matters and that it's a thing that's good for business. Um, mm. I, You know, I would have been happy just to see Kevin Kwan make a jillion dollars selling those <laughs> yes. books forever, but that it crossed over and became this <clears throat> cultural touchstone um, with the adaptation and there are going to be adaptations of the next the other two books as well. I think was really, really important.
1: Yeah, big Blockbustery genre hit that's by an Asian author is no joke. That's, mm-hmm. that's not something we see very much of. My pick, I, uh, I'm going to move to mine, because mine's similar, and I picked it for similar reasons, but it's a different title. Um, it's Everything I Never Told You by Celeste Ng. Oh, and wow. my My theory here is not dissimilar from what you said for Crazy Rich Asians, but I was thinking about how the center of literary-slash-commercial fiction has moved. And I think it's best exemplified by Celeste Ng being a bankable, literary, domestic, novel writer. She that space that she occupies now, and her books sell and they continue to sell. She now occupies kind of the cultural space that Jonathan Franz did 10, 12, 15 years ago. That's mm-hmm. a great point. And that 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 has moved from Franz into Ng, I think is indicative of a lot of things. And I just, I just, I don't know that the, the book itself, the movement is most impo- is more important than this particular title. But I think this title best represents the moving of the center around commercial fiction, crossover literary fiction, to being about different stories in a meaningful way. Um, it's, it's just super important. And that's t- it's 2014, and that's the world I think we've been living in for the last five years, frankly, um, and. We didn't know it at the time, but her follow-up sold. She's going to have big adaptations. You know, it's interesting that her career, we knew her a little bit. She was a friend of the, the side, and she's done podcasts with us. And to see the glow-up mm-hmm. from Celeste Aang mm-hmm. as being the white-hot center of—some people use this term derisively. I don't. I think of it as the middle of the bell curve and demands as as the center of middle brow is super interesting to me and really meaningful yeah um, for, for commercial and literary fiction. So that was my pick, too. Um, Amanda, I guess we've now swung it back around. Too.
2: <laughs> All right. Uh, bad Feminist. <laughs> Woo! On my list, too! Yes! Uh. I have
1: a different Roxane Gay, so that's Fist interesting. We'll talk okay. about Okay, so
2: yeah. Roxane Gay, obviously, 2014. Um, I picked this book for so many reasons. One, I think she has kind of been the leader of that, like, academic, cultural critic also on Twitter talking about The Bachelor kind of mm-hmm. thing that everybody's doing right now. We're like, I can be serious. But also, I live-tweeted the September issue of Vogue that one time. It wasn't that cool. Yeah. Um, and she is just occupying this space, both spaces of pop culture and academia, so well. Like, she just owns it. She owns it. And I've she, there are a lot of people who are not copying her because that's not a whatever thing that you own, but um, who are following in her footsteps in that way. Also, the book itself... Has taken, you know, there's a very long tradition of academic feminist writing out there, and she brought it to everyone else. Um, and even mm. in such a like, brilliant way, even the title is appealing. Like, I, I, this was the first book about feminism that I had ever seen men read um, in my mm. life, which was mm-hmm. amazing. <laughs> Um, and she talks about – I mean, everything – she brings these really lofty and potentially intimidating ideas and potentially, like, really confronting, especially to dudes, ideas it, down into, like, an essay about Scrabble, which is ma- masterful. Like, she's just magic. Roxanne Gay is magic. <laughs> um, and I think that this book was the beginning of a lot of changes in the feminist movement in In pop culture, in um, the way that we talk about it, in the way we consider it, uh, yeah, just emblematic. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I had it on my list paired with Lean In as like... Mm -hmm. Oh, me too! That's my... I had that down. Yay! (laughs) Uh, Yeah, like the trajectory from Lean In feminism to Roxane Gay Bad Feminist feminism, which the books were only published a year apart, but that we had... Like, this represents like what happened between Lean In coming out in 2013 and Bad Feminist coming out in 2014, I think is like the moment that modern feminist discourse got nuance or that like mainstream feminist discourse got nuance because lean in is very one note um, in its message very much about a particular kind of woman with a lot of privilege and a lot of access um, and a very narrow, I think, definition of what it is to be successful as a woman and how to go about getting that. And then Roxane Gay rolled in and was like, look, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. Like this was also, I think Bad Feminist is also the precursor to the conversations we have now about how all your faves are problematic, that Mm. like you can't be there is no such thing as like liberal purity, <laughs> you know, that um, That the perfect is the enemy of the good. And so you can be a decent feminist, <laughs> um, but you can't be a perfect one. And so embracing this notion of doing your best, but knowing that there's that there is nuance, knowing that there are places you're not gonna be great, knowing that you're gonna love like nineties hip hop, which has terribly misogynistic lyrics, and you're gonna love it anyway. And you can mm-hmm. still be a feminist was really important. And that feminism, the conversation about feminism wasn't just owned by privileged white women coming from corporate America anymore, I thought was really important too.
1: Yeah,
2: I, I, I sorry, go ahead, Jeff. Uh, <laughs>
1: Say continue on now. I'll go to my other gay. Page.
2: So I also picked Lean In uh, as mm. a book uh, on my so list. So it's one of
1: your ten. It's one of your ten. It is, yes. Okay, go ahead and talk about that. Great.
2: Okay, so I picked Lean In for the same reason because I think Lean In and Bad Feminist carried a conversation or carried us into a different conversation about feminism. But I think mm. that Lean In stands alone as like a book of the decade or something that should go in the time capsule. But time capsule because – Corporate feminism and capitalist feminism and ho- like hustle culture are such mm. a millennial thing. Like, there's such a thing that people who are coming of age in this decade grew up learning, and like, Sheryl Sandberg's entire message about, you know. <laughs> Just work more, like just do more, do more. Your kids will be fine, leave them with your nanny. You know, it's such privileged nonsense, but it's privileged nonsense that we all have internalized, and that especially women trying to make it in corporate, in any kind of corporate job, uh, or trying to climb a corporate ladder, even though we have, you know, bad feminists and books that have come out since Lean In, it's still, Lean In is still very much, I think, shaping the way that women think they're expected to perform in the mm. workplace. Um, so it, it's having, you know, ripple effects.
1: Um, That's super yeah. interesting, minute because I, I think. Thought about including it too for this similar reason, but thought of it as a dead end. But you're saying that the dead end is important to put in the time capsule, which is a I think yeah. you're right. I think you're absolutely right about that. Or not even a dead end. I mean, to the best of our knowledge, that's not the way to go. Mm-hmm. It's still alive out there, um, for sure.
0: Yeah, I we don't need to lean it. Men I have a different
1: late out. stage capitalist nonsense pick here in a minute, so I'll save that for just a second. My I picked I ultimately went with hunger for Roxanne Gay. Um mm. some of it is personal because the reading experience was so singular for me. Like it just really hit me hard. And I think it took the the more difficult pieces of bad feminist and put them center stage. And re- I think you guys are right. And in, in hindsight, maybe I would have picked bad feminist because maybe that idea of the, the bad feminist and the multi-spectrum applying of modern feminism onto a variety of things is maybe the thing that will end up better. But I thought the way that Roxanne Gay put her experience and body on the line in Hunger mm. was also a part of a larger trend about memoirs by women who have had traumatic experience or traumatic ongoing conditions that have been centered and sell. And I'm not sure where we're going to go from here, but I think this is the best one of these. I'll put it in with Educated. I'll put it in with some of those other kinds of books where we're taking – This experience that I have and am having, centering it, rolling around in it, not trying to explain it away, and being confrontational with the cultural edifices that brought it to be a thing, um, I think continues to be a very radical idea. And I think Hunger best exemplifies it, for me, of what I've read this um, decade. So I could go with Bad Feminist. I really went back and forth. Interestingly... I was look, also looking for, like, who who's my public intellectual? Yeah, if I'm going to have a yeah, capital L literature, I mean. who's my public intellectual? I think Gay. I wanted to look at Coates, but I don't think any of the books on their own capture what was the best about Coates. Like, I think, frankly, his best thing, if I put in a time capsule, is his long essay on reparations, yeah. I think, mm-hmm. was The Atlantic, mm-hmm. and not one of the books. So that might be splitting hairs, but I thought that was interesting to think about um, a little bit, too. I'm not sure where we went around back again.
3: Yeah, I piggybacked on Amanda. Um how do we want to Told you my
1: late capitalist? Yes. N- nonsense pick, the life-changing <laughs> magic of tidy. Uh, up.
2: <laughs> I can't believe I forgot about that one. But... Me
3: too. I totally forgot that
1: one. Um, <gasps> I think in a lot of ways Kondo gets a bad rap, but I'm not sure there's a good rap. You know, like I'm not at best it's okay, fine, clean up. But <laughs> The idea (laughs) of selectively culling your too much capitalism to be happier, I think is very like on brand for the decade Mm -hmm. and that it's sold and has spawned an empire that apparently will now include selling you $80 (laughs) candle holders is just so (gasps) indicative of something that I had to put on the list. A, I think – it's one of the ideas from the decade that are that transcends books, like that mm-hmm. was a book, like tidying up. Does it give you joy? Is like a meme, right? That people yeah. would say, "Well, does it give you joy?" That it it spawned a thing. She's going to do one about work, which I'm sure is going to sell a jillion copies. I just feel like it's one of those. Things, oh, this we have to recognize that this happened, <laughs> and and the conversations around it are a part of that. It's like, well, she just said, well, and then in the, the book, me, well, my books all give me joy. Fine, you don't get it. You didn't read the book. I understand right. that. Like, and it's quite co- like Rebecca and I were talking about Rorschach test for things mm. in the, the episode we just did. I think so much about the life changing magic of tidying up is a Rorschach test for culture at large and individual reactions from it. And it sold. It, I just I had to I had to pay honor to the um, <laughs> decade making garbage of uh, <laughs> that particular.
2: Well, I think that that's really interesting because it is part of these, you know, there's a lot of self-help and self-improvement yes, kind of books yes, coming out yes. right now that are all about how to manage your anxiety and your shit in late stage capitalism. And none yes. of them are about fixing the systems. None of them nope. are about voting in people who will remove this system that's destroying no. all of us. They're all about trying to survive the system, <laughs> and yeah, hers is right. too. And she's just like yeah. the calmest. She's the calmest otter, which
1: is what my it's son. It's like a added. diet for. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. It's like a diet for stuff, right? And mm-hmm. we've learned that, that diet culture itself is so troubling in so many ways. And maybe that's the best transition from hunger, as like hunger mm-hmm. really. Puts into question, it does systemically put into question ideas around bodies where life changing magic is really how not to drown in crap. Mm -hmm. Maybe not like, why are we, where's all this crap coming from and how is it exploiting our anxieties and fears and, you know, um, keeping up with the Joneses. So I do think outside of its particular phenomenon, it is representative of something else. Mm. Uh, Rebecca, Rebecca, I'm just going to throw it to you. Okay, yeah. What what are we talking about next?
3: Wild. Me too! Yeah. Wow, Um, okay, interesting. uh, Yeah, came out in 2012. Huge, like, you know, huge memoir. Uh, But I think the book by itself doesn't make it onto this list, other than Mm. as a best-selling book of the decade. The movie, even, by itself, doesn't make it earn a spot here for me, but it's what wild represents in the culture and that it did really impact the way that people live their lives. And I learned this researching an episode of annotated earlier this year about people who have been inspired by something they read in a book to go do something or change their life in some meaningful way that like this notion of going out into the wilderness to get yourself together after a breakdown or a traumatic experience or a loss is not new, but a woman's telling of it was relatively new and surprising and the beauty in the way that Cheryl Strayed told this story was remarkable. But it caused a measurable and huge shift and increase in the number of people not just hiking the Pacific Crest Trail that she hiked but use of the national parks and of public spaces and they can track that change to the time after the book came out in a sort of small way and then to the time after the movie came out in a bigger way and I think that that's also connected to this spate of talking about like other books about how to deal with the stress of being a person in late stage capitalism there have been a million books in the last couple of years about why you just need to go outside and look at a tree sometimes. Like there have been four or five books about forest bathing that I can count on, that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, Floris Williams had a book called The Nature Fix that was here's all the science of why you need to go outside and look at a tree sometimes and what happens neurologically when you do or when you don't. And I think all of this happening in the later part of the decade stems from cheryl Strait writing a book about how she saved herself by walking um in the first part of the decade so that's um that's why it was on mine
2: i picked it for different reasons you had it too amanda I did. I did. Yeah. Um, also, let me just say that when you search for Wild in the Goodreads search, which is terrible, you get into the Wild, a book by a dude. And that bothers oh. me. Instead of Wild, which is sold more mm-hmm. copies, whatever. Let me not rant about that. So I picked Wild because I think it started this, um, I don't know if I would even call it a movement, but this like thing about women searching for spirituality in secular ways. So Cheryl Strade's definitely doing it. Elizabeth Gilbert and Glennon Doyle and Jen Hatmaker and they're all and Rachel held Evans before she died earlier this year. But after Wild came out, there was this, I don't know like spate of women who wanted to be Oprah. <laughs> like it's all these yeah. Oprahs. it's it's the this decades. Oprah, kind of, even though Oprah is this decades Oprah. Let's be honest, nothing will ever replace Oprah. But this idea that we don't need traditional forms of religious experience in order to have spiritual experiences, because they all use those that language, right? Like they all talk about grace and experiencing the divine and all these kinds of things. But very few of them are actually talking about God. And I think it lines Mm -hmm. up really well to how you know, like a lot. There are a lot of surveys coming out right now about how millennials, especially, aren't. Religious don't consider them religious. Don't consider themselves religious at all. Evangelical churches are shrinking. Churches across the country are closing, um, and so the, it's definitely a, a bigger cultural shift that's happening. And you can see it in the ways that like everybody wants to do tarot readings now. You know, like people are looking for different versions of spirituality. And I think that Wild was the first big blockbuster version of that.
1: Hmm. When was Eat Pray Love? That was last decade, right? Yeah, that yeah. was in the
3: early two thousands.
1: Yeah. Um speaking of um methadone spirituality. <laughs>
3: what? What is that
1: um, show title? Milk and Honey by Rupi Kaur. Uh-huh. Oh, I forgot pick. that one. Um it's hard it's hard to <laughs> imme- it's hard to remember how much this book has sold and you go into Target, it's selling there and six books that all look the same are right around it.
3: It launched and a thousand memes. It
1: did. And I don't know, We Rebecca and I were just talking about how, how much we don't know if like celebrity influencers are a thing, but poetry on Instagram is a thing. Mm-hmm. And this particular title is also broken out of, it's a books and reading thing, it's a cultural thing. And I think it is related to this idea of how to have some sort of transcendent connection without transcendence. Mm. It's, I will read this elliptical almost haiku about bees (laughs) on Instagram and for a moment snatch away my consciousness from the hurly-burly, like, connected world that I live in, even while enabling it at the same time. Like, I think it's very wrapped up in it at the same time.
3: It's... It's such an interesting pick because it's also – that book is, like, so of the time that it yeah. came out that I think by the time our time capsule gets opened in 100 years, no one is going to know what Milk and Honey by I hope Core is. But when they go and Google it or whatever they're going to do 100 years from now, it'll be like, oh, this was a really big deal. And you can yeah. see how it's connected to, like, internet culture, especially of the time. It's an interesting yeah. one.
2: Making um. sounds. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't love that i mean gosh a amanda fan, what do you I, think about milk and honey yeah i think it's great for poetry and bad poetry
1: <laughs> it's the 50 shades of poetry i mean oh, yeah there's the hot but,
2: take <laughs> sure but Fifty yeah, shades i mean
1: bad i mean i don't yeah. know it's no 50 shades
2: say. is bad i think we can we can all agree that it's bad uh, but it's it was bad good for but books. good yeah. ultimately
1: the thing it does is good for people mm-hmm. i'm not sure um Uh, We're getting down to it. Amanda, what's next on your list?
2: Okay. um, I have a kind of a twofer, so I'm going to say these both at once Uh, Fear by Bob Woodward uh, and Becoming by Michelle Obama. Uh, I had Becoming, but separately.
1: Yes. Okay, let's talk let's do becoming for a minute since we all have it
2: on there. Okay. Um well, I feel like it was did they actually did they come out? They both came out in 2018. That's um right. and I think that you can't talk about this decade without talking about political writing, especially since the election. Um and these represent I think two ends of what's happening in political writing right now. Fear is obviously about um well, fear and terror and this like, you know, the day after the impeachment, we're talking about um, that book. But with Becoming, I think that this is more um, hopeful. Um, Michelle Obama, I mean, it's a memoir, it's about her life and meeting her husband and how she was so personally successful all the way up to her experience of leaving the White House as Trump was coming in. Um, But she does not I don't know. Like, this book felt like a lighthouse to me. Like, this is Mm -hmm. how you survive this kind Mm -hmm. of ridiculous, almost, like, farcically bad political experience. Uh, She's got so much dignity and so much ability to think through what's happening right now without letting it overwhelm her. Uh, Because, of course she does. Like, you've lived in the White House for eight years. How do you not develop that kind of ability? Um, But it came out at a time when we all, like, desperately needed and the reason why I picked this one and not Hillary Clinton's book um, is because Hillary Clinton's book wasn't hopeful to me like she was still very much you could tell in what had happened to her Um, and Michelle Obama was able she's got enough distance I think that she could think about it a little more clearly but um, yeah I wanted to put something on it that felt that did represent how there are still so many of us who are living in this hellscape but still have hope that we will come out on the other side Mm -hmm. Um, so that's why I picked it
1: yeah, I picked it for similar reasons, but it's not not for nothing. The book sold like nuts. Yes, I mean, yes it did. <laughs> for the same reason we put 50 Shades on like it sold and it will be read um and it was of a time I think you said there's no one like Oprah Amanda a few minutes ago and I said, "Well, maybe except for one of our other picks." I'm sure I I thought you guys would have become was oh, yeah. like mm. I think whatever it's the the merging of this sort of lifestyle positioning with a more active political consciousness feels very future forward. And maybe that's what I, that's my euphemism for optimistic, but like future looking in <laughs> and, and that kind of way. That's, I mean, mm-hmm. those two things, I think, together for me. And Rebecca, anything we didn't say about Becoming that you wanted
3: yeah, to Yeah, no, y'all really tied it all up together. And I thought about putting what happened on my list also because it's such a, re- I think it's a remarkable book to have come out so soon after the election that Hillary Clinton had synthesized how it how that happened faster than most of us had. <laughs> she was 100%. steps ahead of me, and it happened to her. <laughs> um, I and I think that's going to be a useful document in the future, but I'm not sure that it encapsulated the public moment in the way that becoming did. So I ultimately left it off the list. But just Michelle Obama, the phenomenon, yeah, um, is a story of the decade and her identity, both as the first lady, but her identity as an entity separate from the story of her husband and his political standing, just of her own mission and her own work. Um, Like a very, I think our first truly like modern feminist first lady uh, in a way that set an example for so many people and opened up the possibility of seeing yourself as having political power um, in different ways to people who have not traditionally been told that they, that their identity gives them political power or that they can come from that kind of place or grow to hold that kind of public um, pedestal, really like Amanda and I went together to see her speak when she was on book tour last year and being in that auditorium and surrounded by people who were just so excited. Like it felt like probably what the energy was like, if you were going to like see the Beatles in 1960, like this was (laughs) Mm -hmm. people connect, like plugging into something that felt like a source of power and empowerment to them and becoming just symbolizes all of that together.
1: Um, I have one that's kind of related. I'm actually kind of running out. We've have a lot of um, overlap. I'd be curious if either of you have this, but I think this did for in a lot of ways, represents in YA kind of what becoming represented for the idea of the celebrity memoir, and I have the Hate You Give by Angie. That's Thomas. on mine too. Yeah, um, is it not, Amanda? No. no. Or it, yeah, Kelly wrote um, I think yesterday, the day before, on the site about like, in response to a piece that was wrongheaded about YA in the last decade. Um, but the end of the last decade, really in the beginning into this one, saw. The aftermath of Harry Potter and Twilight, as YA being the domain of fantasy, and that YA's cultural currency was its entree into mainstream culture was through fantasy. But YA itself, over the last decade, and I'm am an observer, not a participant in YA as a whole. But I did read, I do read some, and I read The Hate You Give. The overt politicization about a topic that is not good for all time zones, as Toby Ziegler says in The West Wing, <laughs> being the One of the best-selling YA titles of the decade, getting praise from all sides, multiple book contract, a movie adaptation, that kind of legitimization in a financial and book sales way is not something we'd ever seen happen before about a topic that I don't think is controversial in a real way, but in an American way is controversial, is remarkable. Mm -hmm. And I think even underrated still, The Hate You Give— um, on its own terms. And I think still, I mean, it's only been a few years, but I think still has an edge that makes people uncomfortable. And YA being a place to make people uncomfortable in this kind of way, I think is a new phenomenon. I might be wrong about that. But as being a best selling book, uh, is, I, I think we're gonna be talking about this one for a while.
3: Yeah, I had it on my list because I think outside of the Trump stuff, the stories of the 20 teens are Black Lives Matter and yeah. Me Too. Yeah. And that a big best selling book about Black Lives Matter needed to happen and that it happened for a teen audience and then was read by so many adults but now this book is on syllabi and being taught in schools Mm -hmm. and librarians are building programming around it is really 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 important and then that there was a big movie adaptation is also really 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 important that it that we took a big as you were saying a big and controversial though it shouldn't be discussion and that enough people were interested in having that discussion and seeing what a fictionalized approach to it would look like. And that, that approach was so powerful and became such a big thing, just really matters. And we need to remember yeah. that. Um, and on the me too tip, both of these are too new, I think for us to really have much to say about them right now, but I did make a note that I wanted to mention. I think if we were recording this show in another couple of years, about a 10 year look back, we'd have to talk about, she said and catch and kill as the one, two punch. Um, she said by Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy and Catch and Kill by Ronan Farrow about the reporting of the uh, the initially just the Weinstein um, scandal. Scandal feels like way too small of a word. Um, but also then the Matt Lauer stuff at NBC, the big first stories of Me Too and how they broke, how hard they were to break all of the conspiracy and corporate systemic silence and protection around those, the just bonkers things that happened to these reporters as they were trying to go after these stories is also really important. And part of the story about how me too stuff was allowed to keep going on for as long as it did mm-hmm. before the stories came out. So I think those bear mentioning as well as part of the um, sort of two big cultural conversations that we had in the 20 teens and that these are the books that tie us to them.
1: If I could go next, just cause I had, I had a slot reserved for a nonfiction About a current event or a system. Because I was thinking, like, books like this endure Rachel Carson's Silent Spring Mm. or Unsafe at Any Speed or How the Other Half Live or The Jungle. Like, we get these, you know, one a decade or so. And I was looking around and I thought about She Said, too, Rebecca. And I guess I thought that felt to me like a newspaper ongoing story. And maybe, maybe in a time capsule way, it will crystallize around She Said. I think it would certainly deserve it. I was thinking, I picked Bad Blood, though, because I think. The it, it may be on the leading edge of the kind of what Upton Sinclair did with the jungle for industrialization in America, especially. I think Bad Blood is doing that or represents that kind of a move in information technology, digital startup, surveillance state, those sorts of things. This kind of combination of technology, capitalism, power, all going hand in hand together And the book itself is just a blistering read. Gives it a good chance, I think, of enduring. Like Upton Sinclair's *The Jungle* is still actually a kind of a good read. So is um, *Silent Spring*. I'm not sure. She said I really liked it, but we didn't have the same sort of viral hit internally. Like you've got to read *Bad Blood*. Like just the the experience is so immersive and propulsive that I think it has a pleasure component to longevity that I'm not sure. And, And again, I could easily be wrong about this, but if if there is a turning of the tide around technology and these giant corporations, I think bad blood's a pretty good representation of what that tiding, turning of the tide could look like. So I picked bad blood.
3: That's a good one.
1: What do we have? We must be mopping up now. What do we need to mop up um, with the end here? Who's, who's got picks I think
2: left? it's me. I have three left. Okay. Um, go for it, I, feel, I hate this one. I hate that it's on here, but here we go. The Testaments. Oh. Uh. Uh informing sounds about the Testament.
1: You think so? Think. Yes! Even if I don't want it to be, why do you think it might be?
2: I don't want it to be either, because I didn't much like it. Well, that's overstating. I thought it was fine. I did not okay. like it. Um, but I think if we're talking about... I don't know. If we're talking about this decade, I don't think we can leave out Atwood. <laughs> uh, especially mm-hmm. because The Handmaid's Tale was such a big show. And it was so... Um, Visceral. Like people who watch that show uh, and have read the testaments have this have such a um, a reaction to it because this kind of violence against women and the way that the women are treated in the show it just feels very familiar to everyone right now right um, and so for us to get a sequel to it that continues that story even though we didn't need it. <laughs> Um, feels like a 20-teens kind of tale. Like nobody, almost maybe like Ghosts Out of Watchmen, like nobody asked for that. Um, but here we go. we have it. Okay, fine, you know. Um, but it happens to be about a topic that I think is a little bit more uh, time, well, maybe not, Ghosts Out of Watchmen, whatever, that's a whole other rant. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think that it feels feels very relevant and of a moment and of a kind of publishing system where People can say, oh, I love the show, and it will generate a sequel to a book that nobody asked for.
1: Yeah, I can. you might be right. I guess I would leave it off for the same reason I left Ghost at a Watchman. It feels like in a, a hangers-on to the, the actual thing, which is still The Handmaid's Tale. I might be proven wrong in time. Um, I'm just cranky about it. Well, that's fair. I can definitely see that. <laughs> um, Rebecca, do you have anything yeah, else on your list?
3: I had a pairing here. I was telling y'all before we started that one of the ways I got around our limits for this was like, I'm just going to group these books together. So I had paired up The Martian and The Night Circus as like reader hits of Mm. the decade that both were huge bestsellers. Um, The Martian like made its way through Book Riot as we all um, took turns staying up all night to finish it. (laughs) And The Night Circus is just so widely beloved and also a huge bestseller. That book has sold millions of copies. Mm. Um, I think The Martian benefited from the mainstream breakout of having a huge adaptation made with Matt Damon but like that's a science fiction book that a bunch of people who don't read science fiction read and yeah. loved and made it accessible the night circus is a like genre love story that mm. also went really Steampunk wide.
1: romance, weirdly, if you think of Yeah. In terms and of the genre.
3: reason that I was really thinking about those, though, like, I think every decade has big books that people love and that get adaptations. But these are the two books that we have spent the decade trying to answer the no. question, yeah, what do right. you recommend for people who mm-hmm. like these books? And there is not a great... Like there are some, we found some answers to them, but there's not like a great immediate answer. These are pretty singular reading experiences that were really powerful and fun um, for readers and that like that value of fun of just a book that you sink into that is delightful in some way and you want to stay up all night either finding out if the guy gets off mars and can stop eating potatoes or <laughs> figure out you know which of the teenage magicians is going to win the thing and do they get to be together forever or not with this beautiful imagery like that really fun read that people just love and go back to and then perpetually ask for a read-alike that's impossible to find um it's just worth noting that if you wanted to know like what books do people love in the 20 teens? I think you'd have to put the Martian and the Night Circus in the capsule.
1: I really like that spot of thinking about what's going on the paperback favorites table at Barnes and Noble for the next 30 years. I yeah. think that is an important, that's an yeah. important spot to think about. Um, I guess ter- if we're thinking about moving units, and one of my last picks, I'd be curious what Amanda thinks about this, um, because I know the kind of people that live in her house. <laughs> Dogman, yeah. volume one. The middle-gradization of, or I don't know, the ascendance of middle grade, and especially this kind of, what genre? It's comic. It's a comic. It's a, they're yeah. comics. Middle-grade, co- ser- standalone, multi-volume middle-grade comics is a huge force.
2: Captain Underman? And,
1: yeah. Say, oh, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, throw mm-hmm. them all in there. But I think Dogman, when it, a new Dogman comes out, it sells more than the other ones. When a new one come, I, That's just kind of how I picked it. I know your kids read some of these, Amanda, don't they? Your, uh, your Yeah, we had
2: to go to the Scholastic Book Fair so they could buy the new one.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Ames, as a completionist, he has to have all of them and he reads them multiple times and they show up at the top of bestsellers. And I think, just in terms of trend, that's one that's a trend. And I just wanted to give it a spot. Um, Amanda, what else do you have?
2: All right, um, I have two more. Let me see. The wedding date.
1: Like oh, okay. Story. Okay, picked, interesting. Tell me. I about picked
2: that. it. Well, I picked. I talked about Fifty Shades of Grey at the beginning, which mm-hmm. I think was responsible for making romance much more acceptable to talk about openly, and for readers to talk about in public, which it should have been all along, but whatever. And then I think the wedding date was really our next step in the evolution of the genre, because well, for not for nothing, it gave us a new cover, like a new cover trend. Um, because that, different
1: format. I mean, weird. I mean, mm-hmm. it kind of matters, right? Like that's a trade yeah, paperback. Yeah, it's a trade paperback. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. and and that. Um, along with 50 shades of gray, which was like, Oh, people are reading who don't read because this book, people who don't read romance in my life are reading romance now because they picked up the wedding date and didn't like it because it doesn't look, you know, like yeah. quote unquote, like a romance. Um, I don't know how they get that, but whatever. Um, So it is doing the same thing as Switches Shades of Grey, getting people into the genre who might not necessarily have picked it up for any other reason, other than they don't know that that that's what they're reading. Um, And it is such a bestseller with a diverse cast and a Mm. biracial romance. And, of course, it's not the first to do that by a long shot, but it definitely sold – so many copies yeah. um, and has given us, I think, a, a new direction for romance to go in. Not not that for romance to go in in a commercially su- successful way, which I think is the caveat, because, of course, there have been writers doing diverse romance, interracial romance this whole time. Um, mm-hmm. But it was so successful. Uh, and that's really, you know, publishing is a business and the money talks. And we're going to get more books like this with more marketing support, which is the key because of the success of that book.
1: Yeah, that's a good pick. Uh, Rebecca, do you have anything left?
3: I had Year of Yes by Shonda Rhimes as one of the perpetually recommendable and probably forever relevant self-help books because it's not tied to a a cultural moment, but that feeling of how do I – just the feeling of how do I get more out of my life and that the idea is that you just say yes to more things and it happens to be written by a woman who – runs some of the like <laughs> biggest shows and is one of the most successful showrunners um, and comes from that unique position of being a black woman doing that uh, in the 20 teens. But like, anybody could do this. You don't need any equipment. You don't need any access to anything special. Anybody in any life situation looking for what can I do to like feel more fulfilled or better about what I'm doing? Mm. Could read this book and and take the headline of it, but also find like nuggets of wisdom from her story. And it's one that just continues to show up on lists. And when our contributors talk about it behind the scenes or talk about self-help books behind the scenes, this is one that comes up. Um, I think it's, it's not of the moment and that's the thing that makes it lasting. But I do think, I think it will endure as here's an approach to self-help. And I just think it needed to be on the list. So there you go.
1: Um, I've got one more on my actual 10. Then I think we all have some honorable mentions, (laughs) footnotes, marginalia. I wanted to pick a comic um, and by the hair of its chinny chin, well, actually it's 2012. Saga Volume 1 Ooh. was published in mm. 2012 um, by Brian K. Vaughan and illustrated by Fiona Staples. Again, much like YA, I'm a little more into comics than YA, but I'm a an observer, not a member of the community necessarily. And so if it bubbles up to me, that's generally a good sign of a groundswell of support and that it's an exciting comic. Um, an update of the space opera, it's a lewd, it's profane, it's real, it's violent, it's real without being you know, real, of course. It's a space opera with people with horns and wings and lasers <laughs> and TV heads. But it has the thing that I liked about Star Wars when I was a kid for an adult, a feeling like a world that was lived in with stakes, also interestingly diverse around sexuality and gender identities, and even around race, even though it's set in interstellar space, race is still a component in a very meaningful way in war, in the military-industrial complex. And it just feels like it feels like important work in a medium that's increasingly important. And I think interestingly, too, not adapted into anything else. It is just a comic now. Just, meaning only, not in terms of rank or prestige. And someday it won't be the case. And to launch a new IP strain like Saga from a smaller press, it's not a DC mar- cut. Imprint. It's not a Marvel thing. It's Vaughn and Staples own it. Um, I, I'd be interested to see. It's an ongoing project. It may less. Is it going to be like? Is it going to be like the Avengers and X Men over time or Batman? Is it going to be that? It has the potential to be. So I'm I'm buying now and cash in my chips later when it's as synonymous as Superman or something else like that. Anything else before we get to speed round of honorable mentions?
2: I have one more.
1: Okay, go for it. So
2: my other. last one is the Ferrante. Quartet. Yeah, I thought about oh. that, too. I'm oh. so glad you picked it so
1: we get it included. <laughs> Talk about it, for, for. Uh
2: My Brilliant Friend and then the, you know, the other books that come after, they were published in 2012 through 2015. Ooh. Anne Goldstein is the translator. Um, just like... A blockbuster quartet of literary fiction from an indie press translation. Like what the hell? Yeah, what the <laughs> How hell? How does that is even right? happen? But Americans don't read books in translation. First of all, we don't read books where women are the center of the story, and we certainly don't read four books about them. Mm-hmm. But we did. This was a huge, a huge seller. Europa. Like lives because My Brilliant Friend and the books that yeah. came after it um, were such a big success. Everyone I knew was reading them. They're so readable. They're so good. Um, they're not about anything of the moment because they're set, you know, it's historical fiction about the fifty, like growing up in the 40s and 50s in, in Italy. Um, but it was still subversive and relevant because it was a book about two women and their lifelong friendship. And that is still somehow rare in literary fiction. Mm. Um, so that's why I picked those. Also, the mystery around Elena Ferrante like who she is... Great story. Um, ...is mm. like a whole thing, yeah.
1: Great story. <laughs> it's interesting. I think that I would. I, I, I thought about picking it too, and I had it in the same, I don't know, kind of cage match, and I think it ultimately will win with My Struggle by nasgard And I'm, mm. I just am pretty sure that Ferrante is going to last longer for a variety of reasons, but... Um, that's a really interesting pick too. All right, honorable mentions, almost oddities. What do you guys have?
3: I had just the huge spate of memoirs by Obama staffers. yeah <laughs> <That's interesting. laughs> i I mean, this is personally at the top of my like honorable mentions list because I read all of them. Uh, there was so much variety from like dishy gossipy to really heavily policy focused. They just ran the gamut from hopeful to. Sad and everything in between. And I don't know of another like president in modern history where that president has left office and there's been that much interest and like space for. Stories to be told by so many people who worked in that administration all coming out doing a bunch of things like Obama staffers got famous for being Obama staffers like the pod save America guys are famous on their own now for the work that they've done around, you know, what coming out of the Obama White House and then continuing to be part of cultural and political conversation in a really um, front of house way rather than being behind the scenes. But that like that didn't happen when you know George W Bush left office it didn't happen i don't think when clinton left office there have always been a few memoirs by powerful people from so and so's administration but there were like a dozen and that that feels also like very of the moment to me
1: i feel like three streams coming together the the I guess, a generation that grew up on the West Wing of like, you know, kind of a fetishization of the West Wing staffer and sort of seeing Mm. that as a central figure. And like, those are stories that are interesting. Two is the Obama Camelot kind of vibe. I mean, there was that thing by itself. Mm -hmm. And then Trump, like those three things coming together, I think, carved out a platform for the rank and file White House staffer that I can't imagine ever has happened before. I I don't even know that there were JFK memoirs. You know from JFK staffers just because how that ended and everything else, but people just didn't care, um, in a way that they do now. Amanda Marginalia's also Rand's, honorable mentions.
2: I have two. I have Men okay. Explain Things to Me by Rebecca. Ah, interesting. 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. the essay that collection contains the essay where she invented the word mansplaining, mm. and that is a 20 teens, mm-hmm. yeah, thing. right? Even
1: just the that, idea, alone, like, that alone, that right? alone you have to consider, right? Yeah, like
2: the memification of feminism, that's a whole thing. Stolen. It's brilliant. Um, and then my other one is the Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Oh, why that one? I, I wouldn't have never am, picked that in a million years. Right. That's why I bumped it. Okay, like, okay. I, can't, I can't. No, but why? It right why out? even on like, this list? I think because it was such a bestseller, and it mm. was so like the whole the twist of the book is about sexuality in a, a way mm. that isn't derisive, which I mm. think is really notable um and it's still new enough it came out in 2017 it's still new enough that i don't want to like spoil spoil what that is <laughs> um but and it launched this author so quickly and for like a debut was that a debut yeah it was her debut mm-hmm. wasn't it seven um for a debut novelist and for it to be about something like as as random as like old hollywood you know <laughs> like it's just this such an interesting success story. Um, and we got a few of those in in this decade, like debut novelists who yeah. got all of this money writing books that were like, really, you know, um, and mm-hmm. then turned out to be blockbusters. Um, but everybody, I think I keep saying this, but it was like one of those books that people in my life who aren't readers read. And I think mm-hmm. those are always worth poking at a little.
1: Yeah. I have two honorable mentions. Um, I was looking for a, I You know, these books happen, the popular book that encapsulated in a, like a scientific idea, you know, the, the Brief History of Times and those things like that. Ultimately, I'm not sure that the book form matters that much, but Thinking Fast and Slow captures ah. a big idea that's influenced a lot of areas of life. And, you know, I think they've won Nobel Prizes. Their story is interesting. I think behavioral economics— Behavioral psychology is going to be a thing in the future that is considered, and this was the you know the culmination of decades worth of work. But it happened this decade, and that book sells. It's out there on tables. I see it. We talk about it. I don't know if it's mainstream enough that it will be the tome of behavioral um, uh, psychology, but that was a contender. And the other one is a book that doesn't exist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Any ideas? I think the Winds of Winter hung over oh, this decade oh. in a really important way and as we talked about adaptation gold rushes and the paralysis of a writer in the face of overwhelming and unprecedented fan pressure I think is an interesting story mm-hmm. and we don't know enough about it and a book doesn't exist but I I thought it was like that for all the books we talk about The Winds of Winter for not existing was awfully important for our discourse and Game of Thrones and how big of a thing that became. And this weird divergent dual canon we ha- we're going to have, I guess, eventually at some point, about one of the foundational IPs of the now 21st century didn't come out. It's didn't come out before Book Riot started, which is wild to me to think about. Um, I don't know. I just wanted to hang a lantern on that one. Any last thoughts here?
3: Yeah, I had... A category for like things i begrudgingly think we have to mention is mm. um,
1: okay let's get, <laughs> rip them off of, here at the end
3: sensations of the decade the band-aid i'm ripping off um since i refused to talk about the testaments um and i'm just gonna lump them together even though they have nothing to do with each other um the fault in our stars and where the crawdads sing oh. as giant yeah. bestsellers that became cultural touchstones of a moment like Nothing was bigger than The Fault in Our Stars at the moment that it was big, but also nobody talks about it anymore. No,
1: um, they don't. Wow, and, that's amazing.
3: Yeah, and I think it was 2013, maybe 2012 when it mm. came out, and I think yeah. that's that whole trajectory, um, and maybe the connection of like what YA is doing now, and that we have moved from The Fault in Our Stars being the biggest YA book yeah. to something like The Hate You Give being our biggest YA book, and what... Readers of YA want books to do for them. Um, that's an interesting story, but I just felt like we had to mention The Fault in Our Stars, and we have to mention where the crawdads sing because, like, nothing sold like that book mm-hmm. um, other than Fifty Shades of Grey <laughs> in this in this decade. And for mysterious reasons, just sort of took off, and no one can really explain the origins of it. Yeah. So those were my like, ugh, we have to hold our nose and acknowledge these. And then I did a like moment in the Shinsky wheelhouse of. um books of about of women writing about their relationships with the natural world, mm-hmm. which I think Cheryl Strayed also helped tip off. And Amanda, I think what you were saying about women getting to write about looking for spirituality in non-traditional places is connected to that. But to me, it's also women getting to write the kinds of books that like, Henry David Thoreau got to Mm. write 200 years ago. Um, But that is summed up for me in the trifecta of H is for Hawk, Lab Girl, and When Women Were Birds. Like Mm. I can't talk about my books of the decade without talking about When Women Were Birds, but it sits right there um, for me with Lab Girl and H is for Hawk as women relating to the natural world and a really meaningful and like central part of their identities.
1: The only other one I had, and I guess it's, it connects with a lot of the trends we talked about. I mean, I think, A lot of, I mean, I I think you guys would agree. Tell me if I'm wrong. That the story in books was talk and action around inclusion in Mm -hmm. a variety. I mean, that's the story of books in the last decade, Um, and so many of what we selected, I think, are a part of that story. The one, the other one I had is like N.K. Jemisin. I just didn't know which one to pick. I feel like her (laughs) and in sci-fi. Is super meaningful, but I didn't know if it was Broken Earth or Inheritance, or maybe in the fullness of time one of those will emerge, or what she's working on now. I don't know, but that was one of those stories. Like, I didn't really know. I have a, I didn't have a confident pick around the book, but that was one. Like, there's something here that is worth mentioning. So that's my mentioning too. Um, wild to think about how far we've come in ten years, and as how so not how far we've come at the same time. I think it is interesting that I don't think there's a novel by a white man on our list and we didn't even have to try. I don't think we even have to try. It's not mm-hmm. even I can't even think of what it would be. I guess my struggle's oh, it's not here. Yeah, but it's not a novel. I mean oh, in terms of liter, like in terms of fiction this list of the prior 10 years would have been wildly different. Yeah. And as um Eor as I was being about the Goodreads Choice winners <laughs> This These lists seem to be very interesting, and um, I don't know. What's the word you used that I hate? Oh, optimism, Amanda. It's optimistic <laughs> Sorry. Uh, in a certain, <laughs> certain kind of way. Thank you guys so much. This was really interesting. More or less overlap than you were expecting coming in?
3: I think ab- about what I was yeah, expecting. Yeah, about what I thought. Uh, okay. Yeah, Amanda and I are the same person in a lot of ways, so... <laughs> I think it's, yeah, I I was not surprised there. And some of them were just obvious. Really interesting where it was
1: divergent, though. Yeah, towards the end of our list, I guess, because we'd struck out the ones we had had on the shared list. All right, guys, talk to you in 10 years. We're done for 10 years.
2: (laughs) Bye.